There are nights when the voices of the unknown and of the dead can be heard in the land of the living. This is one such night, a night that will inexorably lead to terror at Collinwood. Welcome to Episode 9 of Terror at Collinwood, a podcast dedicated to the classic gothic television series, Dark Shadows. I am your hostess, Danielle, a.k.a. Penny Dreadful, and I'm back in black and ready to attack. Here's the deal. Uh, as you, If you've been following this podcast, you know it's been uh, a little while since I've done an episode, and that's because I've moved to a new apartment. I finally got the Wi-Fi going here. I'm kind of settled in, but uh, there is going to be another break coming up, alas. Uh, this computer is on the way out that I'm using right now. I'm going to be getting a new computer and getting all the software on that and stuff, so there's going to be a little break there, but that's neither here nor there. We're here to talk about Dark Shadows, right? Uh, first, before we dive in, thank you to Derek M. Cook at Monster. Kid Radio. Derek had me on a recent episode of his and I had an absolute blast. It was episode 531 uh, and I talked about Dark Shadows with Derek. We geeked out about it. Derek is a big Dark Shadows fan as well. I will have him on the podcast at some point to talk about one of the storylines down the road here. Uh, But you can find Monster Kid Radio at monsterkidradio.net and you can also find Monster Kid Radio on YouTube. So today uh, it's sort of to, to bridge the the gap. Uh, we're going to dive into our long-promised email episode, the listener email episode. Uh, I've been talking about this for a little while, and I have quite a few. Uh, so thank you to everybody who wrote in, and thank you to everybody for listening to this podcast. I sincerely appreciate it. This is going to be our first listener email episode. I'm going to do these periodically, maybe every few months. Uh, our first message comes from Albert Tapia. Or is it Tapia? I think it's Tapia. Dear Penny Dreadful the 13th, Greetings, I just finished listening to your first podcast for terror at Collinwood and enjoy it. We have similar backgrounds. I was born December 5th, 1964, and along with my older brother Fred, 1957 to 2006, grew up reading famous monsters and watching Universal, Hammer, and AIP horror movies. I barely remember the last season of Dark Shadows, but I read Gold Key's DS comics, then watched it during its first syndication run in 1974-1975. About seven years ago, I bought the complete collection and have now watched the entire series from beginning to end twice. I look forward to your future podcast. Take care, Albert Tapia. Albert, thank you so much for writing in. I'm so sorry about the loss of your brother, Fred, in 2006. Thank you for sharing your memories about watching Dark Shadows, and I love that you got into the Gold Key comics. Those are really fun, and I'll probably do some episodes on those at some point down the road too, because uh, they had some some creatures in those comics that I thought were fun that they never used in the actual show. Like, they had one with a golem, I remember, and they had one with a mummy, uh, and they had uh, all kinds of weird stories in those. They were fun, you know. They were The artwork was a little iffy at times. Some of the stories were not very good. Some of them were actually quite strong. Uh, so, fun, fun stuff in those gold key comics, for sure. Um, but thank you very much for writing in. I really appreciate it. Our next message comes from Ricardo Delgado. Hi, Penny. I discovered your great podcast through Derek's Monster Kid Radio and wanted to tell you how much I'm enjoying it. I have 
my own illustrated Dracula novel being published this August with a foreword by the great Don Glute. It's called Dracula of Transylvania. Oh, this is awesome. Well, thank you very much, Ricardo. First of all, congratulations on Dracula of Transylvania. Folks, look it up. If you go to Amazon.com, you can find it there. Uh, it looks very interesting and how awesome that you have Don Glute writing the intro. For those who don't know, uh, well, the Masters of the Universe fandom knows Don Glute for his um, first four Masters of the Universe mini comics. Don is a, also a huge Dark Shadows fan, a huge horror fan, classic horror fan. He was uh, done, of course, the uh, adaptation of The Empire Strikes Back, which is perhaps what he's most known for writing-wise, but he's did the occult files of Dr. Spectre and Gold Key Comics and made several films. He's uh, a fantastic, fantastic writer, and uh, hopefully I can get Don Glute on here at some point, too, because I know he is a, he, he's, he's put references to Dark Shadows in his films. Uh, congratulations on that, Ricardo, and thank you for writing in. Our next message comes from Jay Howard. I also came to the show in 1982 with reruns on a UHF channel. They ran the show through the Quentin Laura storyline. This is where Quentin was trying to blow out the flame that kept her alive. The show then left for a year, then picked up from there through the start of Parallel Time. I was unable to see the remainder of the run until Sci-Fi Channel in the 90s. My obsession with the show resulted in meeting Jonathan Frid in 1987 in Detroit. He was in the touring production of Arsenic and Old Lace. I also wrote him frequently, and he would send back autographed pictures. Of course, by 1989, we had MPI to thank for releasing the entire run. I was pulled to the show because I felt the pain Barnabas had. I was a sickly child. I was bullied, and Dark Shadows gave me a de facto home. I think a lot of us were attracted to the show because we felt different, just like Barnabas. Your show is wonderful, and I really hope you keep it up. Always a fan, Jay. Jay, thank you so much for sharing that uh, and for, for writing in. I really appreciate it, and I agree with you. I think Dark Shadows appealed to a lot of us who felt different uh, and felt like outsiders, and uh, it, was an, it was an escape for us, and we could kind of connect with those characters, absolutely. And how awesome that you got to see Jonathan Frid in Arsenic and Old Lace. Oh, I, how I wish I could have seen him as Jonathan Brewster. That must have just been sensational. Our next message also comes from Jay Howard. He says, would love to hear your feelings on the evolution of Quentin. He starts as a complete playboy slash womanizer, but becomes a hero and a man of deep regret. David Selby was a classic leading man in the type of Grant or Radford. I would have liked him to have gone on to a huge movie career in the 70s. What his career became was great, and he worked and continues to work. Also dissect the 91 series. There is a lot to chew on here. Dan basically took the entire first year of the show and just improved upon it. Would you like to see a new show? It would work on a streamer only. HBO Max is missing a huge opportunity with Dark Shadows. Well, Jay, thank you for writing again. And um, as for Quentin, I think, you know, we'll, we'll dive into that when we talk 1897 um, and his evolution as a character. Quentin is clearly, you know, a rogue. He was a villain when he, when we, he first came on the show, but he was so likable and charming, even though he was uh, an antagonist, uh, That just like with Barnabas, you know, we grow to love Barnabas, and uh, much like Barnabas, Quentin evolved from being a villain to an anti-hero. I wouldn't call him a straight-up hero. He there, there There's too much uh, damage there with Quentin. There's a dark side to Quentin, or uh, he's, I think Quentin is forced to grow up 
basically. He is a cavalier, roguish dabbler in the occult who is out for himself, but he sees his family basically being destroyed and, and overtaken, especially when he becomes the werewolf. When he's cursed with lycanthropy and starts, you know, turning into an animal and, and ripping people apart, um, he's Quentin for all his flaw, many flaws. He's stricken. He is stricken with, with some level of conscience there. He's forced to own the awful stuff that he does, right? He brought this on himself. And he's also forced to take responsibility. Uh, before that, he didn't really have many responsibilities. He'd travel around and blow his money and do what he wanted to do. But when uh, Count Patofi shows up and starts insinuating himself into Collinwood and manipulating Quentin's family through the use of magic, he has this weight on his shoulders now. Right. Whereas before he didn't really have a weight on his shoulders. He was just a troublemaker, a black sheep of the family. But now he has this weight on his shoulders and he's forced to, to own it, to grow up, you know. Uh, but I still think there are shades of gray with Quentin, as there are with Barnabas and with Angelique and Dr. Hoffman. Um, there's... He is not a traditional hero. He is more of an anti-hero. You know, even when we see uh, during the Gerard and Daphne hauntings, like he's in love with the, this de ghost of a dead woman and he's, he, he knows all this horrible stuff is destined to happen. At Col the destruction of Collinwood is imminent and yet he's keeping secrets from Barnabas and Julia because he's in love with Daphne and, and an obsessive kind of love with Daphne and very unhealthy. Clearly, she's a ghost, you know, so he's hiding things from them. Quentin is troubled himself and he, re he, he does, I agree, he does have deep regrets but he's also a troubled character, but he certainly becomes an anti-hero. Um, as for the 91 series, I definitely want to talk about that at some point down the road. That's something I would like to cover and discuss. Um, I don't agree that Dan improved the, the show, uh, the first entire first year of the show. Uh, I think it's its own thing. Uh, I think it, I haven't watched it in years. It's been a long time. I watched it when it first aired, and then I watched the VHS tapes when those came out from MPI, which I still have those. Uh, and I actually haven't watched it since, even though I picked up the DVD set. I need to revisit the 91 series. I enjoyed it when I watched it back in the in 91. I never felt it was an improvement on the original series. I just felt it was its own thing. Like, I know Dan Curtis looked at it as giving you the dark shadows you remembered, not the dark shadows that actually existed. Um, I like the dark shadows that actually existed. I love the dark shadows that actually existed. This was very slick, but it was also very Hollywood. Uh, you know, I remember one scene with Ben Cross with a tan and a turtleneck at night. He's like, he's a vampire. That looks weird to me. Um, but anyway, um, we will talk about it. I did enjoy it. I mean, I thought the casting was spot on for that 91 series, especially people like, I even, you know, John, uh, Ben Cross as, as Barnabas was a good choice, I thought. Uh, Barbara Steele as Dr. Hoffman, uh, I was wondering, it was, it was great seeing Barbara Steele doing a horror-related show, uh, you know, it was back in that genre because Barbara Steele, of course, is legendary horror star. Um, and, uh, and everybody, I thought, was Joanna Going was great, fantastic. Gene Simmons was a good Elizabeth. There, were, there was a lot. Uh, there to, to to talk about the 1790 flashback was really cool. There's a lot. There's a lot to talk about with that show, and we'll we'll probably talk about it at some point. I, I'm sure I'll devote an episode or two to the 91 series. 
As for what I'd like to see in a new show, um, I talked about this with Ansel, you know, the Dark Shadows Reincarnation is still being shopped around. It is not dead, as Ansel pointed out, so potentially that could be uh, something that will come to fruition, uh, and I agree, it should be on a streaming channel. My feeling on that is let's not do another reboot. Let's not go that route anymore, Let, uh, as they did with the 91 series, as they did with the 2004 on-air WB pilot, and even to some degree with the Depp film. Let's look at Dark Shadows, the next generation. What I think they should do is what they were going to do with Dark Shadows Reincarnation, which is Dark Shadows, the next generation. That's what I think they should do. Everything that happened in the original series from 1966 to 1971, is canon that exists that's what you pull from as far as references to the past you can absolutely do that but you tell new stories you tell new stories with the next generation of collinses you have an older carolyn and an older david and you tell stories with those characters barnabas still exists i think you have i know dark shadows is not just about barnabas certainly there it's an ensemble show uh in fact there's a, a facebook page called dark shadows is an ensemble show damn it so it's not just barnabas but it would be foolish to think that barnabas is not an essential, the essential character that needs to be in Dark Shadows. We had a year of it almost prior to Barnabas in 1841 Parallel Time. There's no Barnabas, but there are certainly, there's Barnabas is, is a looming presence, or at least the Parallel Time version of Barnabas is as his son is sort of now thrust into, the, into this protagonist role. I think you definitely need to have somebody be Barnabas. Um, I, and that's going to be the tough part because you could do Dark Shadows without Barnabas. Maybe you could have him as just sort of a presence, the portraits on the wall. He's been chained back in his coffin. Maybe he, maybe Barnabas lost control. Maybe he's, he's a vampire again and they decide for his own, they can't, Julia can't cure him. They decide for his own sake. He has to be chained back up in the mausoleum um, and maybe that's where he is and maybe there's always the threat that Barnabas is going somebody's gonna let Barnabas out again maybe he's trying to get out maybe you're hearing the heartbeat I don't know I mean I'm just kind of spitballing but I think he has to be a presence in the show to some degree and I don't know how they're how they would pull that off uh, clearly you also have a, a, a dilemma with somebody like Quentin or Angelique, for that matter, who are immortal, technically immortal, and don't age. So how are we going to present? In the audio dramas, they can do that because it's their voices. But um, on camera, are we? do we come up with a reason why Quentin started to age? Why Angelique started to age? Or do we recast those roles? Or are they off somewhere? Like, they're just legends at this point, you know, that are known but you know, maybe you see Quentin's portrait now, like even more aged than we saw it in, uh, in 1970, right? You see Quentin's really decayed portrait. One thing I always wanted to see um, was what the port, because of course we know not only does the portrait keep Quentin young, it also absorbed the werewolf curse. So when the when Quentin is supposed to transform, the painting transforms instead. So what does the old werewolf Quentin look like in that portrait? Like, is the hair like all like gray or white? Um, I remember uh, the fanfic that was written done by Charles Delaware Troll, where they basically wrote another year of Dark Shadows, like episode summaries, and they did include a scene where you see the portrait change into the werewolf in the present day. And it was, you know, 
what you would imagine, like an, an old, very scarred, old werewolf. <laughs> I kind of want to see that, actually. I hope somebody paints that. Thank you again, Jay, for writing in. Next one comes from Deborah Bradford. This is a short one. It says, thank you for doing this podcast. It's delightful so far. Thank you, Deborah. You are delightful. Thank you for writing in. So our next message comes from Tina O'Malley. Hi, Penny Dreadful. I am a longtime DS fan and love your podcast. I have a question which might ruffle your feathers. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> I hope not. Is there anything about the Tim Burton movie you do like? Ah, yes. This question. Well, Tina, how dare you send this question to me? No. I'm just kidding. <laughs> There are a few things I like about the Tim Burton movie. A few. Um, I liked the scenery. Uh, Tim Burton is always great with visuals, okay? So I've always appreciated Tim Burton's visuals. I was a massive Tim Burton fan back in the 90s, the 80s and 90s. His early films, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, uh, Batman, I'm a huge Batman fan. Batman and Batman Returns, I loved both. Um, Edward Scissorhands, of course, Nightmare Before Christmas. I have a Jack Skellington tattoo on my shoulder. Uh, I am a massive fan of Tim Burton's early stuff. Okay, I loved uh, Sleepy Hollow too. Uh, and that's Mars Attacks even. But there were things I like. Uh, the exterior of Collinwood, I appreciated that he actually made the effort and the people involved with the film to capture the some of the appearance of the original show in terms of like the ex- the, col- the exterior of Collinwood looked like Seaview Terrace. It looked like the Carrie Mansion. Um, and I thought that was really cool. Like, I mean, it was slightly different, but it had that look to it. How Widow's Hill looked, you know, things like that. You see Collinsport, that was really cool to see. Things like that I thought were really cool. Even down to Barnabas's, I've mentioned this before, I know it's a minor thing, but the fact that uh, Johnny Depp had the Barnabas bangs, he had the bangs, the pointy bangs. There were more points, as Jonathan Fred pointed out when he saw Johnny Depp, he said, oh, a few more points than I had. Um, that was that's Barnabas's hairstyle. Like um, they didn't do that in the '91 series. They Ben Cross looked more Hollywood in that, I guess. Uh, and even Alec Newman, when the the on air WB pilot, he just kind of had a more him and Cross had kind of a more generic vampire look. There's just something very archetypal about how Barnabas looks. It's almost like a cartoon character. Like if you draw. Um, if I take Popeye, there was a, an 80s cartoon with Popeye where they got rid of the pipe uh, and they got rid of the hat, they got rid of the sailor suit, they put him in a Hawaiian shirt. And yeah, okay, that's Popeye, but he doesn't look like Popeye. He's not wearing the sort of iconic outfit that Popeye wears, uh, you know, something to that effect. For Barnabas, I think there are four things you have to have. And I'm not talking about performance at all. I'm talking about just for his look, right? You have to have the pointy bangs, the Roman bangs. You you got to have some degree of that. It doesn't have to be as pronounced as how Jonathan Frid had it, especially as the series went on. You could do it like in the earlier days where it's just, it's a little more subtle, even I mean, I'm fine with the more pronounced bangs too. Like when you, by the time you see Barnabas in 69 and 70, like, I mean, those bangs are (laughs) not subtle at all, but it's great. It's part of his, you know, it's something really weird and eccentric about it. And I think you gotta have the pointy bangs. And that's one thing about Barnabas that I think is important too. He's eccentric, right? You know, there's, this is lacking. They're trying to make Barnabas this like hot vampire with a tan. And it's like, no, make him an eccentric and like a vampire and he's compelling. And there's something about him that draws you to him. But anyway, I'm talking about uh, depiction versus uh, look. 
pointy bangs got to be there. Uh, the cane, the Barnabas cane, the, the cloak, the Inverness cloak, and the ring, the black ring, the onyx ring, um, and the silver-headed cane. Depp did all of those things. The, well, the cane was ivory because they went with the vampire thing with not touching silver. Uh, I get... I. I can respect that. I prefer the silver-headed cane, but I it, they still did a wolf-head cane. So that, I thought, was cool. Um, I was fine with that. Oh, they went, Of course, they went extreme with how he looked to the point where it was clownish, but general territory, I think he actually came the closest to what Barnabas should look like compared to other revivals. Okay, I will say I did laugh at one thing during the movie. There was one line that made me laugh out loud, and I, I don't appreciate the idea of turning Dark Shadows into a, into a goofball comedy, but there was one line that made me laugh. It was when Barnabas was with the hippies and he says, love means never having to say you're sorry. However, it is with sincere regret that I must now kill all of you. <laughs> it was just like, it was just, I know Jim Pearson hated that line, but it was hilarious. One thing I like about Barnabas is that he's unpredictable. And that was kind of, a non, even though it was a stupid joke, there were a few things that I can point to that I say, okay, that was... I, oh, and the fact that the original cast members appeared, even though it was very fleeting, and Christopher Lee was in it, uh, because of course I love Christopher Lee, and just kind of the reversal of a vampire like hypnotizing Christopher Lee was kind of fun. So there were a few things that I liked. Overall, I thought it was a dumpster fire. Uh, so, uh, and I hope that they never try to make a screwball comedy Dark Shadows again, and that they stick with the gothic tone of the show. I would rather. If they did a new version of Dark Shadows, they'll never catch lightning in a bottle again. You know, let's let's put that out there too. If they attempt to, like, I hope it's something closer to the 91 series where they actually did try to maintain the tone of Dark Shadows, the to capture the feel and tone of, of the original Dark Shadows. There was a genuine and earnest effort to do that, okay? And of course it was Dan Curtis and Sam Hall and Bob Cobert and all these folks from the original show were involved in that. I think you have to have somebody who knows what makes Dark Shadows tick uh, at the head of this. You know, I'm not saying you can't change things or add things or whatever, but I think you have to go to the core of that otherworldly dark fantasy feeling, right? And no like tongue-in-cheek sex jokes and things like this. I'm not saying there can't be humor. There can be witty humor. There was humor in the original Dark Shadows, but it, just like there was in the Universal horror films and in Hammer horror films too, like some of the villagers and stuff, there is some of that in there. You can be witty and funny without being a screwball comedy with uh, that doesn't take the material seriously, you know? Uh, anyway, moving on from that. So there were a few things. I hope that answers your question. Um, our next message comes from Jim Childs, who is also horror host, sicko, psychotic, fellow horror host, sicko, psychotic, horror host, high five, sicko, psychotic. Greetings, Penny Dreadful. I just discovered your terror at Collinwood podcast and really enjoyed it. I've watched all of the episodes from the original Dark Shadows, but sadly found that I had forgotten some of it. Thank you for recapping the show and reminding me of those special moments that have vanished from my memory over time. Thank you so much for that message, Jim. I really appreciate it. And 
be sure to check out Sicko Psychotic. Uh, he is a horror host and he his makeup looks fantastic, like really green, ghoulish makeup with white hair. And you can find him at sickopsychotic.blogspot.com. So check him out. And thanks again, uh, J- uh, Jim, for writing in. Our next message comes from Mike Tutino. Mike says, just wanted to say how much I'm enjoying the Dark Shadows podcast. I had drifted away from the show and was looking for a way to start watching it again. Your first episode did the trick, so thank you. Well, thank you, Mike, and I am thrilled that this podcast got you thinking about Dark Shadows again and watching it again, and that's part of why I'm doing this, is keeping Dark Shadows uh, in people's minds and hearts, and thank you very much for writing it, and I really appreciate it, Mike. Our next message comes from Chad Curtis. Hi, Danielle. Greetings from Dr. Gangrene's domain here in Tennessee. Congrats on the podcast and for the wonderful job you're doing. I've been a Dark Shadows fan since the 70s syndication era, and the black and white pre-Barnabas episodes are my favorites. I'm so looking forward to the next episode. God bless Chad Curtis. Not related to Dan. Well, at least I don't think so. Gallatin, Tennessee. Chad, thanks for writing in uh, and send Dr. Gangrene my my best. I want to get Dr. Gangrene on the show. For those who don't know, Dr. Gangrene is a wonderful horror host, legendary horror host. He's been on, uh, on for quite a while. We did a crossover a few years back, a special called the Dreadful Hello Green special, which you can find on Alpha Home Video. Uh, it is available on DVD. And uh, it was fun doing a crossover with Dr. Gangrene because we both share a lot of uh, similar interests in terms of the things that we like and uh, and such. So, and Larry is just such a uh, Dr. Gangrene is such a great guy, uh, really really talented and nice person. Uh, so, thank you, Chad, for for that. And a lot of people who wrote in, including Chad here, uh, sent uh, suggestions for closing lines. Of course, we already had a winner for that. So, thank you for that, Chad. Uh, I did have. A winner on the closing line. Our next message comes from John Martinez. Dear Danielle, thanks for producing such a quality podcast about my favorite show, Dark Shadows. I've been a fan since the 90s when I caught the show on the Sci-Fi Channel. I quickly became hooked. I enjoyed Eric Marshall's Dark Shadows cartoon artwork very much, and I'm glad Adam was included because he's one of my favorite characters. Why do you think Dark Shadows was so popular when it aired and has become so iconic as a show in pop culture? Well, John, thank you for writing in, first of all, and thanks for your comments about Eric's Dark Shadows uh, Hanna-Barbera cartoon artwork, which if you haven't seen it, please head over to terror at Collinwood.com, click on the blog section, and you can see all of the wonderful cartoon model sheets that Eric did. We concocted this idea that what if Dark Shadows had had a Hanna-Barbera cartoon in the 70s, much like Star Trek had a filmation cartoon series in the 70s. So check out Eric's amazing artwork in that uh, in that post. As for your question, John, about why Dark Shadows is so popular, that's a difficult question to answer, and we could devote an entire series of episodes to that, which I intend to do at some point. I wanted to that really dive into that, and I think we're going to explore that as we go along. Uh, one reason, uh, I'll throw out kind of a, a key reason here that I think sometimes gets overlooked in discussions about why Dark Shadows is so popular. Like, if you listen to the interviews with the creators of the show, they were they don't really reference this so much, but the fact is, Dark Shadows hit at the height of the monster craze. This started in the 50s and it gained momentum into the 60s and the 70s and it was a classic monster craze. Horror hosts, I mean the first horror host of course we had Vampira 
1954, and then we had Zachary in 1957, and of course the shock theater package, which was they packaged the universal horror films and sent them out to TV stations all over the country to local stations to air. Okay, that was, so that was the monster craze was grew from that and from things like the EC Tales from the Crypt comics. Okay, and you had Hammer horror films that were a hit at the time in the fifth, starting in the late 50s. You know, you started having Dracula and Frankenstein films and all kinds of other gothic horror films. And this is uh, specifically, I'm talking about like these gothic horror films from the 30s became a huge thing with kids. Like kids and teenagers got into Frankenstein and Dracula and the Phantom of the Opera. I mean, movies that came out like 20, 30, 40 years before they were even born even sometimes, you know? So um, these movies became huge and just classic monsters in general, things like horror records, like Pickwick horror records and uh, toys games. The, of course, I, I would be remiss in not mentioning the Aurora model kits, which were huge. I mean, when Aurora released the Frankenstein kit, it was sold like crazy. So they did all the monsters, or most of them, you know, the Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, the Bride, all of that stuff, Jekyll and Hyde. They just were pumping out these model kits and kids were just eating them up. And you had shows like The Addams Family, The Monsters, the groovy ghoulies, you know, this stuff was a cartoon. Um, this stuff was in the cultural zeitgeist at the time. It was a frenzy, a craze for classic monsters. Famous monsters of Filmland, of course, um, you know, with the beloved editor Forrest J. Ackerman and publisher James Warren. Uh, you had f it was things like Famous Monsters, Creepy, Eerie Magazine too, and all these other monster magazines that were spawned from Famous Monsters of Filmland, Castle of Frankenstein, Monster World, things like that. Dark Shadows hit right at the epicenter of that, okay? If that started in the 50s and ended somewhere in the 70s, I would argue it even went into the very early 80s. Um, I caught the tail end of that. Like, I was born in the early 70s, and I remember, like, the Remco monsters in, in, in the store and, and uh, seeing ads for, for the model kits and, and uh, the Mego monsters, the Mad Monsters. Like, I caught the tail end of the monster craze. So I remember it as a, as a young child. And also, of course, my uncle was a monster kid. He was a, that's which is what they call fans, like who are fans of the classic horror genre of gothic horror and monsters and things, even, not only gothic horror, but things like Godzilla and King Kong and those kinds of kinds of things. If you look at the cultural roadmap during that time, this is when Dark Shadows hit. Now, I've mentioned before, Dan Curtis was a fan of the Universal horror films and fan, a fan of, of gothic horror in general, okay? So I am sure to some extent that Dan Curtis, whether I, I'm not speaking about Art Wallace or, you know, Robert Costello, Leela Swift or Henry Kapler or anybody else who was involved in sort of the formation of the show at the time. I'm talking specifically about Dan Curtis. I can't speak for certain, but I am almost sure that Dan Curtis must have had some awareness of that, of the monster craze during that time. He did have two daughters who were children at the time, and they may have been 
into that too. Classic horror was on the map in a big way. So the fact that Dark Shadows brought in vampires and werewolves and Frankenstein monsters and zombies and ghosts and witches and uh, warlocks, etc., and and that it dovetailed perfectly with the wave from Transylvania, <laughs> okay? It definitely was a factor in it. So that's one component. There are several other components, I will say, as well. The acting, the writing, and just the set design, the, the music, the costumes, the creative process that went into basically putting on a 22-minute play every five days a week, uh, the energy, the spontaneity of that carried through as well. There, there are many factors, I think, and people will focus on certain ones depending on their own background and interests. But I think one that tends to get some, not among classic horror fans, we classic horror fans know about the monster craze and we love that stuff. So of course we're aware of how Dark Shadows fits into the pantheon of classic terror. Some people maybe look down their noses a little bit at it too, uh, because they're all monsters, that's kids stuff. Um, but it actually isn't uh, in the sense that this spawned from classic literature in the 18th and 19th century and then fed into classic film and then fed into pop culture, into the pop culture zeitgeist and Dark Shadows was a big part of that wave in the 60s. And it bridged the gap in a lot of ways going into the 70s and what we saw uh, from that genre in the 70s, okay? So I think that's a, a massive part of why Dark Shadows was and continues to be so iconic in pop culture. Uh, and I hope that answers your question, John, uh, to some extent anyway. Uh, I will dive back into this throughout this podcast series. Our next message comes from Phil Alumbo. He sent me several emails, so I'm going to hit some highlights here. Hi, Penny. Regarding your Dark Shadows podcast, I wanted to write to express my appreciation. Dark Shadows is a passion of mine, and it was serendipitous to discover the Collinsport Historical Society and the podcast. Your knowledge of the Dark Shadows universe was inspiring, and I loved many of your opinions regarding characters and storylines. I've listened to your podcast numerous times and hope there's more to come. I could talk Shadows mythos for hours. It's that special to me. Dark Shadows remains the gold standard for its very unique genre, and nothing today comes close. Thankfully, we have the episodes, fanzines, books, and audio dramas, and continuing fascination with Dark Shadows, and even that ridiculous, campy, foolish, meaningless 2012 movie, more like Adam's Family and Monsters. Couldn't hurt its popularity, though it didn't help. Wrapping up, thanks again for the devotion and work on the podcast. Truly hope there's more. Best, Phil. And then Phil writes again and says, Hi, Danielle, regarding your article on the Dark Shadows cartoon. I really appreciate Eric Marshall's artwork. He's got that 70s genre style of Hanna-Barbera Scooby-Doo down pat. Really polished. I miss the times of Dark Shadows fanzines. Some of the artwork was first rate. I'm a graphic artist and would have liked to contribute back then. Maybe a DS fanzine, a hard copy to hold like the good old days will happen again. Best Phil. I would love it if a new Dark Shadows fanzine came out, especially with desktop publishing possibilities you have now. You could do a really slick published fanzine that actually looks like a magazine that you see on a newsstand. Um, I see fans doing this in other fandoms. Um, there are several 
fan magazines for other shows and other brands or whatever, uh, where they're publishing like slick, glossy magazines that the where the layout looks like something you'd get from a publisher on the newsstand or better in some cases. The things you can do with computers now are amazing. I am not a tech whiz by any means, so uh, sadly I can't do that. But I agree, I miss the old days of the Dark Shadows zines. There were so many great fanzines. Uh, Kathy Resch, The World of Dark Shadows, of course, talk about gold standard. That was the gold standard fanzine, but you had wonderful, fantastic fanzines. Like you had Shadowgram, the newsletter by Marcy Robin, and you had Dale Clark's Inside the Old House, Dan Silvio's Shadows of the Night, uh, Mae Sutherland had the Wincliffe Watch. Jeff Hamill had the Eagle Hill Sentinel. I I could go on and on. There were dozens of them. They were great. They all had their own unique flavor and style. Uh, Bruce Yarber with uh, Colin Wood revisited. Uh, There was also the Music Box. I remember the Music Box was a fanzine. Just endless. The Parallel Times, the Dark Shadows Quarterly, uh, endless fanzines. Now, with the internet age... The fanzines have evaporated. Uh, I think there there are some online ones. If you if you do some googling, you'll find some online zines for Dark Shadows. And I'm sorry, the names escape me off the top of my head. But I do miss the like hard copy, and I would love to see a glossy magazine style fanzine done by like fans who are really uh, know their how to put a magazine like that together just like the with the with the articles the fanfic the fan art the um the debating the speculation the speculation about the plot and characters and kind of filling in the blanks and things like that like essays fan essays those were always great like i loved uh, the fan page and inside the old house that was always a really cool section of the zine so maybe so if you're listening to this and you know you're you have those skills you know hey why not do it, you know? If you have the time and, and the energy, uh, give it a whirl. Anyway, thank you for writing in. But let's move on. The next message comes from Paul Marcucci. Penny, I just finished listening to your third podcast, and I wanted to let you know that I have enjoyed the three podcasts that you've done. I am a big fan of Dark Shadows since it was originally broadcast in the late 60s and early 70s. I have since rewatched the series numerous times and have the DVDs of the series. I feel that it is important that there is a podcast on the series because it gives Dark Shadows publicity. I still hope that a streaming service or network would bring back the series in a, in a reconfigured show that would garner a large audience. I also hope that Big Finish Productions comes up with new storylines. One of the plot points that could be discussed is Angelique's unsuccessful attempt to undo the vampire curse after she initially placed it on Barnabas. What was her motivation behind undoing the curse? Did she realize that she would be felled by her curse and she loved him? Was her motivation that she didn't want her spouse to die? Could Angelique have overplayed her hand? Was she afraid that the ghost of Jeremiah would exact revenge on her for what she had done to his innocent nephew? There's just a few of the questions that the series did not illuminate. Keep up the good work on the Dark Shadows podcast, Paul Marcucci. Paul, thank you for writing in with that uh, delightful message. Um, As for Angelique's attempt to undo the vampire curse, she was scared. Uh, I mean, she knew what she told Ben, he will do things even more horrible than I would wish on anyone, right? Something to that effect. The fact that Angelique would say something like that, considering the awful things she has done, she is not going to be able to control 
a vampire Barnabas. And yes, I think part of that is the curse. Like she knows she's in love with, she loves Barnabas. So she's, she's uh, in the crosshairs. He, she's gonna be the first one in the crosshairs when Barnabas rises from the grave because he's gonna want to exact revenge. I think it's a comic, she knows how monstrous he's going to be. And she knows that she is placed herself in danger. You know, it's the cutting off your nose to spite your face scenario. So I think she wanted to destroy Barnabas to prevent uh, her own destruction. And I think there's a little bit of the, what have I unleashed? She does in fact become the first victim of the curse as Barnabas points out. So I think that's the primary reason. But anyway, thank you, Paul, uh, for writing in. All right, let's move on here. Our next message comes from Robin Chang. Dear Penny, I wanted to send a quick note saying, thanks so much for putting on this Dark Shadows podcast, the best that's out there on this show. Every episode you've done has been a lot of fun and detailed. Have you thought about having future episodes on literary influences? One on Lovecraft especially might be interesting. Rick Lay or Stephen Mark Rainey know a lot about Dark Shadows and Lovecraftian horror and might be worth talking to. Thank you again. Robin, thank you so much for writing. Absolutely. Uh, I totally agree. Uh, I've known Mark through the Dark Shadows forums for, for some time and through Facebook and we've corresponded before and he's a, a wonderful author uh, and wrote some of the Big Finish audio plays as well, uh, which were great. Uh, really, some of my favorites actually that were Mark Rainey's. And um, Rick Lay wrote an excellent article about uh, Lovecraft and the Leviathans. So I, both of them, I think it would be great to have them both on. They're, they're actually who I have in mind when I get to the Leviathan storyline. If they're uh, available, I'd love to have them both on at the same time to, to talk about that. I haven't had two guests on at once. I don't know if my Zoom can handle that, but we're going to give it a shot. But they're definitely on my radar, let's put it that way. But thank you very much for writing and for the kind words about the podcast. Our next message comes from Andrew Higgins. Dear Penny Dreadful the 13th, greetings from Brighton, UK. I just wanted to let you know how much I'm enjoying your terror at Collinwood podcast. I finished listening to episode three today. I have been living in the UK for the last 20 years, but grew up in New York City where I first started watching Dark Shadows and have continued throughout my life. In addition to my professional fundraising work, I'm also a scholar and did my PhD on the earliest version of J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth mythology and do work on invented languages in fiction. I recently wrote a chapter on Dark Shadows for a new academic volume on world building, attaching a copy which may help with your research for the podcast. Andrew, I want to thank you for sending this article to me and for writing in. I love this article. It's about world building in Dark Shadows, which is amazing. And you can find this article in uh, in a book. It's a book of essays, scholarly essays, called um, the Exploring Imaginary Worlds. Uh, and Andrew's article uh, about uh, world building in Collinsport is in there. And there are some great articles in there about Tolkien and other topics that you should really check out. Um, so Andrew, thank you for sending that. I loved the article. And I uh, actually plan to have Andrew on the show at some point to talk about this very topic world built dark shadows world building uh and just world building in uh in fantasy fiction i think it would be a, a great topic so andrew thank you and thank you for sharing the pod i've noticed that you've shared it on twitter and um and social media so thank you for doing that i really appreciate you spreading the spreading the word about terror at collinwood so moving on here to our next message from dennis willett enjoying your dark shadows podcast let me explain the clip i've attached 
There is an app called Reface that allows you to animate pictures or put new faces on movie clips. They have a clip of Dark Shadows from the 2012 movie. I replaced Johnny Depp's face with Jonathan Frid's and I think it's an improvement. Thought you might enjoy it. That was really cool, Dennis, and weird and cool to see, but thank you for sending that. He goes on to say, I was introduced to Dark Shadows in December 1968 by a friend of mine. My first episode, I think, was where Amy came to Collinwood. I was a month short of my 13th birthday at the time. I watched to the end. In the middle 80s, our local PBS station began airing Dark Shadows, two episodes a night, starting with 210. When I first started watching it, I was like, where are Julia and Stokes? It's in black and white. It was fun, though, to catch up on the backstory. When I first saw Jason McGuire, I thought it was Paul Stoddard because I had seen him in the Leviathan storyline. Of course, I have all 26 DVD volumes. I even caught up on the beginning on YouTube. You mentioned how long it took for them to say vampire. More than that, in 1967, it seems no one in Collinsport ever heard of a vampire. If you saw a girl with puncture wounds on her neck and a loss of blood, even if you didn't believe in them, wouldn't you say, geez, it looks like she got bit by a vampire? After this, the first thing they think is vampire. I kind of liked it. The early years were more based in reality. I wonder if the writers had a different backstory in mind for Barnabas. Look at the things he says in the beginning. His hatred of Jeremiah. To my knowledge, Barnabas never hated Jeremiah. He mentions a shouting match with his father on the stairs. Knowing the magic number of the universe, he never mentions anyone putting a curse on him. Uh, I imagine Jeremiah was older, Joshua's older brother, Josette came to marry him as a marriage of convenience to combine their fortunes, also to provide Jeremiah with an heir, but it was a loveless marriage. I see Barnabas as something like Quentin, a dabbler in the occult. He meets Josette and they fall in love. Joshua and Jeremiah discover the affair and plan to send Barnabas overseas to handle Colin's interests there. That precipitates the argument on the stairs. Barnabas conducts a black mask to ask for the power to defeat them. As happens with dabblers in the black arts, it boomerangs on him and he is turned into a vampire. Josette finds out where he is and jumps off what he is, rather, and jumps off Widow's Hill, and Joshua chains Barnabas in the box. In other words, Barnabas is a victim of his own contrivance. I will keep listening. Dennis Willett. Dennis, thank you for sending that theory in. I love that. Uh, and I think it's uh, probably closer to what they had in mind for what Barnabas's backstory would have been based on the hints that he drops. And certainly uh, a lot of things don't line up with what we see in 1795. And to me, I think, you know, the way to explain that in canon and in canon explanation for that is probably the hatred of Jeremiah. Maybe my, I was talking with Eric about this, uh, maybe in the original run of events. I mean, obviously Vicky went back in time. So perhaps her presence in the past has altered things like, uh, you know, the, the sort of the butterfly effect here. Maybe in the original run of events when it was Phyllis Wick, maybe Barnabas never learned that Angelique bewitched Jeremiah and Josette. Maybe he genuinely thought they ran off together, thus his hatred festering over time. Uh, possible, possible option. Maybe the original series of events wasn't exactly what we saw when Vicky went back to 1795 because Victoria wasn't there to begin with. Um, shouting match on this with with his father on the stairs maybe it happened off screen um maybe it happened another time maybe it was over his marriage to angelique uh you know there could be could be other options there knowing the magic number of the universe now this is interesting because when we see Barnabas in 1897, he also mentions having sailed out, you know, to exotic locales and including to the West Indies where he knew about zombies and voodoo. Uh, so Barnabas has some knowledge of the occult, uh, even as we see, you know, based on that magic number of the universe, but also things like what he said uh, in 1897. But it kind of doesn't line up with his seeming disbelief 
in the occult and supernatural at times, especially in 1795, because if he has seen those things, which he says he has, why does he seem to sort of scoff at the idea of the supernatural and the occult in 1795? So that kind of doesn't line up, but maybe maybe he's a, a skeptic, but after he becomes a vampire, obviously he knows, oh, this stuff is real and fully embraces his knowledge of the occult, that he's things snatches of what he has seen uh, as a youth, as a teenager perhaps, or in his early 20s, sailing sailing out. Um, he never mentions anyone putting the curse on him. My guess, he probably doesn't want to bring it up. He doesn't want to talk about it. He would, Barnabas clearly very very private, uh, so maybe he just maybe he just didn't share that information. Uh, he certainly does when he's sees Angelique's portrait in 1968 when he sees her again, which was a great scene when he sees that portrait, but maybe prior to that he just didn't want to mention her name even and bring her up, bring her to mind. I'm talking in canon now. Like a lot of times when I talk, people have written in with real life explanations and I, I understand why that wasn't uh, clarified, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this from a very geeky in canon perspective. Anyway, maybe it was that. But great theories. I love uh, I love these ideas, and I'm sure that that's cl- much closer to what the writers were thinking and Dan Curtis at that time, uh, if they were thinking of a backstory for Barnabas, uh, which I, I imagine at least the writers had some ideas, echoes of ideas, but not fully formed storylines, uh, at least. Um, okay, uh, and thank you very much, Dennis, for sending that in. And Dennis is based in Toledo, Ohio. Our next message comes from John Burnside. Hello, Miss Galerter. A friend sent me the link to your blog entry about the idea for a 70s cartoon version of Dark Shadows, and what a delightful surprise it was. It's a marvelous idea, and Eric Marshall's model sheets are gorgeous. I was especially relieved that he made Julia properly exotic, rather than the hideous hag she was in the old comic books. Uh, And I'm looking forward to seeing what Mr. Marshall does with the other plot lines, particularly the 1897 one, which was my favorite. I was in high school during the first run of the show and in fact helped write a Mad Magazine type parody of that for the high school newspaper. Not to ridicule the show, but because comedy writing was something I wanted to do and was sort of good at, even though not good enough to have done it professionally. I did keep the idea of killing wood after that though and continued toying with it over time, finally coming up with a somewhat more adult finished version for years later. I've also listened to your delightful podcast with all those wonderfully talented and creative people. It's just amazing all the people who have been enchanted and inspired by the show, and your knowledge of the subject is incredible. Thank you so much for putting all this together and sharing it with the world. Oh, and also, I'd like to mention that I grew up in a small town near Kansas City, and in the early 1960s, my favorite horror host of Son of Chiller went by Penny Dreadful, so I have a very fond place in my heart for that name. I wish you all the best with your podcast and blog and your upcoming move. John M. Burnside, Minneapolis, Minnesota. John, awesome. I love that you watched the original Penny Dreadful in the 60s, uh, Rose Marie Earp. Um, and she. I often refer to her as my great-great-grandmother, Penny Dreadful the first, which is why I'm Penny Dreadful the 13th. Um, when I started hosting a horror show, um, I was unaware that there was, had been a prior uh, horror host named Penny Dreadful. But she still has a lot 
lot of fans. And so uh, I added the 13th to my name and she became my my great-great-grandmother, Penny Dreadful the First. So, or great-great-great-great-grandmother. But she's, uh, I believe she's still with us, uh, uh, Miss Earp. So uh, I'd love to chat with her at some point. It would just be great to, to, to have a, a Penny Dreadful crossover between, between the Dreadfuls. Uh, but thank you very much, John. And I, I would love to see your Dark Shadows parody. If you send me a link, I'd love to check it out. And our next comment comes from YouTube from my friend Ray Castile. Uh, Ray Castile is wonderful. Uh, you should check out his YouTube channel, Ray Castile's Basement of Horror, which I highly recommend, and I will put a link to it in the YouTube version of this podcast in the co- in the description for the podcast. And Ray is a member of the Universal Monster Army. He is a monster collector who makes amazing videos about really cool, rare items and even current items, and he discusses them and reviews them. He's also a very talented musician and composes great music, which he plays in this, I mean, amazing setup of synthesizers that he has. He's like surrounded by synthesizers and plays his great songs. And he was also young Coffin Joe in the film Embodiment of Evil. He played Zé du Caixão, like, and he looks eerily like Coffin Joe. José Mojica Meringe, he, uh, the late great uh, Zé du Caixão. Uh, Ray played the young version of Coffin Joe in Embodiment of Evil. And just be sure to check out his YouTube channel for all of the marvels that you will uncover there. So Ray uh, weighed in on the ongoing debate uh, about whether Nicholas Blair is a warlock or a demon. And I think from the responses I've gotten, most people tend to lean uh, warlock with a few demons sprinkled in there. So uh, Ray posted this really insightful comment here. So uh, I'll read it to you. It says, I never thought there was any question that Nicholas Blair was a super powerful warlock. As you said, all the promotional material called him a warlock and Estrado called him a warlock. He's not an ordinary warlock, just like Angelique is not an ordinary witch. And Barnabas is not a garden variety vampire. They're all alpha monsters king and queen titan varieties of these creatures. Blair is like an evil white wizard in the Lord of the Rings universe. There are a small number of super warlocks that report directly to Satan, each assigned to a different region of Earth tasked with sowing chaos and spreading evil to bring humanity closer to Satan. Nicholas keeps failing at his assignments because that meddling vampire and his spooky pals always get in the way. Satan chews out Nicholas and casts him into purgatory until he needs him again. Um, and And I replied uh, to Ray, and I'll kind of read parts of my reply here. Uh, Excellent insights, Ray. Uh, King and queen titan varieties of these creatures works nicely. To add to the warlock side of the argument, during the 1897 storyline, Angelique reveals that before she came to that time, she was in the everlasting pits of hell where other creatures of her kind live, presumably after they've been destroyed on Earth. Like Nicholas, she also has a direct link to Diabolus and is seen speaking to him in hell. Since Angelique is clearly identified as a witch, not a demon, many times over the course of the series, it stands to reason that at least some other witches and warlocks are sent to the underworld after their mortal destruction only to be resurrected on the mortal plane when granted permission to return. And perhaps the titan variety witches and warlocks, like Angelique and Nicholas, who have gained in power and infernal corruption over time, are the ones who are granted a direct audience with their master. In any case, witches and warlocks who get their powers via some pact with diabolic forces 
houses tend to at least eventually occupy a sort of in-between place that isn't fully human anymore, particularly after a return from death. I think we see this in horror films like Black Sunday uh, with uh, Asa and Suspiria with Helena Marcos. Um, and I was actually speaking with Eric uh, Marshall, who was in episode two of the podcast, about this Nicholas question recently. And his feeling is that he is a warlock who was promoted by the devil to lead the coven and relishes lording his status over Cassandra slash Angelique while he's in that role. Um, because as we saw, Angelique in 1795 was also super powerful. Um, so there, there's a sort of hierarchy and people get promoted and demoted, as you might imagine with Satan, who's <laughs> who's clearly very into punishing uh, those who fail him. Uh, as we see Nicholas later in the Leviathan storyline, he is actually greatly depowered during uh, that storyline. Um, that said, there's also a very good case to be made for him being a demon. Uh, and I've seen many fans argue in favor of that interpretation too, which sometimes has me going, hmm, maybe he is. Um, when Dominique uh, Lamsey was on the show, she brought up some really good points in that regard. Uh, in addition, Barnabas calls him a brother spirit, a brother devil, but does not refer to him as a warlock or witch. Um, however, during a later conversation with Vicky, uh, which I mentioned during that episode, the word warlock is indeed bandied about, though not entirely confirmed by Nicholas. He just kind of smirks and jokes about it a little bit. He dodges it. And I wonder if anybody ever thought to ask the writers, uh, Sam Hall and Gordon Russell or Dan Curtis even, uh, this question directly. Um, I, I mean, as Ray pointed out, uh, Humphrey Ellen Estrato did discuss being a warlock in that article, Get Hip to the Warlock. But I'm, I'm going to dig through the old fanzines and see if I can find any interviews with the with the writers where maybe that came up in conversation. Uh, a lot of times, he, you know, even Humbert himself in the Ron Barry interview, I think he referred to him as like a, a 007 for, for, for the devil, you know, so, which is, again, is not a direct saying he's a warlock or a demon. Anyway, um, curious to hear your thoughts, listeners, uh, if you have a theory about that or if you have some confirmation from a source that I may not be aware of or have forgotten about, uh, throw it my way. I'd be curious to hear uh, hear about it. Um, okay, well, thank you very much for weighing on, in on that, Raymond. And my response was really lengthy. I apologize for that, but I thought I would, I would throw that in there. Um, our next message comes from Gothling1955 on YouTube. This is very exciting. As a kid, I was such a fan of the original series, then later came to appreciate the first two feature films. Over time, I've revisited the old show, although I'd largely go jumping in here or there. A full viewing of the entire series is surely in order. Meanwhile, I look forward to hearing this marvelous expedition into the glorious past as a fondly met exercise to demonstrate that Barnabas Collins and Dark Shadows never die. Ah, Gothling1955, I couldn't agree more. Thank you very much for this delightful YouTube message. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, and with that, I think we're going to call it quits here. Stay tuned. Uh, like I said, there's going to be another little break here as I uh, switch computers to a new computer and I have to install all the software and get all of that sorted out. Uh, so I will be back. I have some really cool guests lined up to talk about a variety of topics. And be sure to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or on any podcast, 
podcast app you use. Give us a rating, give us a review. It really helps to promote the podcast and get the podcast out to more listeners. Um, the more ratings and reviews it gets, the more uh, people will find out about it because it'll start showing up more and more in searches. And any shares on social media are greatly appreciated as well. Thank you to all of those who have done so and continue to do so. I really appreciate that too. It's all about sharing love for Dark Shadows and celebrating um, the show. So be sure to check out the website, terror at Collinwood, all one word, dot com. And feel free to drop me an email at terror at Collinwood at gmail.com. I am also on Facebook, Penny Dreadful. If you just look up Penny Dreadful, you should be able to find me. I'm the one with the witch hat on and the profile picture. Um, and I'm on Instagram. I am on Twitter. You can find me there too. Uh, Instagram is at PennyDreadful1313 uh, and Twitter is uh, Danielle13Penny. Thank you very much for listening. And for as long as they lived, the dark shadows never truly went away, for there will always be terror at Collinwood. Terror at Collinwood is a Penny Dreadful production.